I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, being a pessimist or an optimist. All right? Let me tell you what they are and then we're going to do a little survey. I thought of actually being a little bit radical about this, but it depends on how comfortable you are. Uh, a pessimist is someone who expects the worst, aren't they? An optimist is someone who is disposed to take a favourable view on things. All right? Which one are you? By default. Okay, here we go. We're going to have a vote now. Can you, you're going to have to put your hand up. All right? Who knows? By default. Now, let me say one more thing, right? You can be... I'll be honest. I'll tell you what I am first, just so that you know. This might help the pessimist to come out of the closet, right? Because by default, I'm a pessimist, all right? And part of the reason I'm a pessimist, I'm a pessimist because I actually want to think about what I'm going to do for plan B, C and D if the first thing doesn't come off, because the first thing's probably not going to come off, all right? It's going to end badly, so I've just got to work out what I'm going to do when that doesn't happen, all right? Honestly, that's kind of my default setting, is to think that way, okay? So who here knows that they're probably a little bit pessimistic in their thinking? Who's with me? Oh, some of them are even smiling. Isn't that amazing? Okay, put your hands down. Who's, who knows? Yeah, well, I, I think I'm an optimist. All the pessimists are going, that can't be right. <laughs> you know what's... Uh, I mean, I'll throw out a couple of general caricatures about uh, pessimists and optimists, all right? Pessimists get really annoyed by optimists sometimes. <laughs> Is there, have you, any of you pessimists ever noticed that? What the heck are you thinking? All right? Especially when there's absolutely no good reason why you should have a positive frame of mind about something. Have you ever noticed that? They do. They get this thing up. No, it's going to be good. It's not going to be good. It's hell right now. <laughs> All right? But here's the thing. The pessimists really irritate the optimists too, don't they? Because even when something's good hap is happening, it's not good. All right? They're just kind of going, well, something bad's going to happen. All right? This is just a setup for a fall. All right? And it's going to be a face plant in about five seconds. And this is uh, typified really by uh, Murphy's Law. You know, Murphy's Law, if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong at the worst possible time. If there's a possibility of several things going wrong, the one that will cause the most damage will be the first to go wrong. If you perceive that there are four possible ways in which something can go wrong and circumvent these, and a fifth unprepared for way will promptly develop. If everything seems to be going well, you've obviously overlooked something, and uh, nature always seems to hide with the hidden flaw. All right? It's, um, it's out there. All right? And... Uh, Optimists, pessimists, we kind of tend to be somewhere on that, uh, on that continuum. But what's really interesting, I've been thinking about this and I just think, what's the antidote for the pessimist and what's the foundation for an optimist? Because it is, I think, as a pessimist, it is irritating when an optimist is really positive about stuff and they've got no reason to be so, all right? Just go, oh, that's just irritating, all right? But here's the thing, it's really bad for a pessimist to be down on everything too, all right, so what's the antidote to a pessimist and the, uh, the foundation for an optimist? You know what I reckon it is? It's hope. That's what it is. It's hope. You, uh, I remember this guy that was discipling me many, many years ago said to me that he was thinking about hope. And honestly, for most of my life, I just haven't got my head around the biblical concept of what hope is. Now, you can read it, and I've had people preach it at me and all that sort of stuff, but I haven't really got my head around it and I just feel like I'm starting to get my head around it because hope is actually embedded everywhere. I was listening to a uh, talk on uh, Friday about 
handling people who are suicidal. You see, suicide is when the person's only hope left is death. That's what it is. All right? All, all hope is kind of gone. So in life, when, when hope evaporates, so does the desire to live. It's just kind of how it works. And some of you may be, I don't know, some of you may be in a situation right now where you just go, well, it's, it's hopeless. It's, it's literally hopeless. And that is, intrinsically, that is a very, very sad place to be in, to be in a hopeless place. You see, I got sick, I think, on Thursday. And you know what's built into me is eventually my body's going to fight this and I'm going to get better. You know what that is? That's hope. You see, you cut yourself and you expect it to heal, all right? And it's a decent expectation because most of the time, probably 99% of the time, it heals. You see, that's, that's actually hope. There's hope everywhere. You can have a really, really bad day at work and come home and just go, well, surely it can't stay that bad. I could even have three of these days, but I've never had a whole year of these. And that's hope. You've actually got hope. And uh, there's no place that's more filled with hope to some, to some degree, I think, than a New Year's Eve party. Everyone just goes, glad to get rid of that one. All right? Let's get into the next one, right? That's just, that's totally, that is hope all over it. And the really interesting thing is if you look biblically, I'll tell you a place that is totally absent of any kind of hope. You know where that is? That's hell. There's no hope. Imagine being there. Imagine being in pain. There's no hope that it's ever going to go away. Imagine being chronically sick and there's no hope that you're ever going to be healed. Imagine being incredibly lonely and that's just going to stay. Imagine feeling the bitterness and the knives of other people and the hatred of other people and it's never, ever going to be taken away. See, that's hopeless. That's really, really hopeless. The truth is that we actually live in a world that's filled with hope, don't we? And to a large extent, I think, Of all people, the church and Christians ought to be the most positive people. They should be the biggest optimists. True? Because they have got the greatest hope. Alright? And they've got a different hope to everyone else. You see, the way that most people use the, the, the term hope is in a wishing kind of a sense. I wish that something good would happen to me. I hope it happens. But you know what? That is not the biblical understanding of what hope is. The biblical understanding of what hope is, is that it's a certain and sure expectation of some future event. You see, I think that when you remove God from hope, it becomes a wish. So when you actually look at it biblically, uh, and my thinking's pretty early in this, so don't take this to the bank, right? But this is my thinking at the moment. I think when you look at it biblically, when people put their hope in a person, they are assured of an outcome. But if people only put their hope in an outcome... It's a baseless wish. Does that make sense? And, and when you look in the Bible, what you actually find is not that people are all the way through the Bible hoping on a particular outcome. They're hoping in God and then God's promising them a particular outcome. And that's a big difference. You, you, just, you don't want to get in this mentality where it's all about, I just wish, I wish, I wish. God in the Bible is not interested in putting things out to you that you can wish on that may not happen. When he talks about hope, he's telling you things that will happen and he wants you to trust him. 
You see, the difference between biblical hope and wishing is the difference between hoping in an outcome alone and hoping in the person who delivers outcomes. That's the difference. So what I want to do today, I'm trying to be really short today, and you'll find out why in a second. We've got someone who's come to share with us. But I just want to give you a couple of texts about hope because you guys ought to be a little bit more fired up than what you already are today. All right? Now, just so that you know, the, the use of the word amen is allowed in this church, right? So if you hear something about God and you think that's really good and you want that to be the case, you could, you could even say amen, all right? Because it kind of means let it be, okay? And honestly, like you'll see in one of these scriptures here, we're, we're a little bit dull. Like if the hope is that good, we're a little dull. True? It's that good, right? <laughs> amen, yeah, let's have some more of that. Yeah, all the pessimists are quiet. And the, that's right. All the pessimists are thinking all those scriptures are just for the optimists. You get what I'm saying? Like, honestly, I, I, I honestly think we just seem to get into it a bit. All right? Amen. Yeah, come on. Come on. See, if someone comes in here, if someone comes in here and they don't follow Jesus and they see everyone here and they're all sitting here and there's this... I'm not saying Sondergeld's waxing eloquent, right? But if Sondergeld even reads a verse and you go, that is a sweet verse, right? We all just sit there and get your kind of frown on, all right? The person who doesn't follow Jesus is going, well, they're not that excited about it, all right? I was just saying to the uh, music team out the side there, you know, I don't know whether you've ever been in a church and you, and you sit there and you just, well, you kind of listen, listen, listen. Then all of a sudden the guy next to, next to you or the lady next to you just goes, yeah, that's good. You know, you just go, what, what? You kind of, what do they say? And then all of a sudden you start thinking about it. You go, yeah, that is good. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with that lady or that fella. So look, I don't know. The project here, you might think you get the hard truth a lot of the time. Well, you're getting the sweet truth, right? And when you get the sweet truth, hopefully at the project you get the sweet truth and the hard truth together because that's kind of how the Bible does it most of the time. But you ought to get excited about the sweet truth. Yeah? And we should all go out of here like, I know you'll, you'll have your own kind of disposition, but we honestly should go out of here. And at the end, I should go, who's the optimist here, right? And we all should have our hands up and just go, absolutely, right? I'm a converted optimist, okay? Here we go. Here's your first scripture. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. This is hope text number one. How good is that? For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So, amen out there from anyone? How good's that? How many, do you even know how many promises are in the Bible for you? There are th- probably thousands of promises that God makes in the Bible. And you know what? When Jesus dies on the cross, the signature gets put on the, the check, the rubber stamp's put on, and it's painful for every promise. Every single promise. Every single promise. You'd be an optimist, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be an optimist? It's like... I'm not even doubting that they're going to happen. Well, they're just going to happen. God says, you don't doubt, you don't even have to think about it. It's just, yes, that's the answer. Now, here's your application. Falling apart up here. Hope applied. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Yeah, is that good? Does anyone think that's good? See, tomorrow there's going to be some temptation, probably. 
Now, if all of God's promises are yes, this one is too. All right? And this one says, tomorrow I can sail straight into a temptation situation and I don't need to freak out because God's made sure it's not too much for me and he's given me an escape route. How good's that? You don't actually have to fall. I don't know whether you've ever been in the situation where you get into a temptation situation, you go, I can't get out of it, it's too much for me, right? The promise here is going, it's not too much for you, all right? Because <laughs> he made sure it wasn't, okay? And here's your way out, right? Now, there's a catch, right? He says most of the time what he's going to do is help you to stand up under it, all right? Not get out of it, right? Most of the time God is get through, not get out, all right? But he'll get you through, all right? So the point is if you get a, uh, a temptation situation and you fall, he provided uh, the help and he provided the assurance it wasn't going to be too much, something just kind of got messed up probably at our end. All right? That is a sweet hope. You don't know what kind of temptation might come your way in 12 months' time, but you don't have to give in to it and it won't be too much. Amen? Amen. Isn't that good? Test yeah, test or trial, suffering, all of it. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? You know, where Jesus says, uh, "A bruised reed he won't break, and a smouldering wick he won't snuff out." I don't. Know. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's 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 some real tenderness. All right, here we go. This one's next one is quoted pretty often. I think it probably goes a bit like water off a duck's back. But um, let's have a crack. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, come on, you're just, you're just going to need to think about that one, right? Because you've probably, you probably quoted it a lot and you've heard other people quote it. How many things? All things. All, 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 all right? If it's all, there's nothing that's left out. It's all things. All things are going to end up good. All things. See, that is incredibly hope-inspiring. Your whole world could tear apart tomorrow and you could have hope. And it's not a wish. It's not like I wish that something good would happen. God says it will be good. He doesn't say it won't be hard, but he says it will be good. It will be good. Don't mums need to hear this? True? It will be good. All right? Mums, don't gloss over it too quickly. All things will work together for good. You see, you need to sit on this one until you hear it hit the bottom, right? You know, like a vending machine, you put your coins in and it goes through and hits the, the coin bucket. There's scriptures where they've just been quoted lots and lots and lots and you kind of, in the end, you go, eh, it's nice. You just go, well, it's going to be nice tomorrow when your workmate rips it through you. All right? And you've had enough and you just kind of go, I'm done with this. This sucks. This is terrible, Right? And hopefully in the back of your head you're going to hear God's working this for good. And you just go, oh, okay. Well, maybe your child breaks their arm. Maybe they're just really rebellious. So God, I'm claiming Romans 8, 28, because it says in 1 Corinthians that all your promises are yes in Christ. Hope. True? That is not, I wish it to work out for good. That is a sure and certain expectation it will work out for good. See, what sort of things happen to mums? Well, they've got bad behaviour sometimes, don't they? There can be injury, there's conflict in the house. If you've got more than one person in there, you don't even need kids in a house to have conflict. You just need the two adults. 
There's rebellion. Kids can have struggles at school. They can have struggles with their learning. It can be failure. And, uh, and your kids can suffer. It can be real financial insecurity. And Paul, who got his head taken off by the Romans, church tradition tells us, is saying all things work together for good. Whipped, beaten up, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, I think, in the end in Acts, wasn't he? When uh, he was staking up a fire and he says, all things work together for good. See, that's extremely hope-inspiring. It's going to be good. As hard as it is, I don't even know what you're going through at the moment. I don't know what's going on. And sometimes people can be going through things that other people don't even know about. It's like this internal kind of battle that's going on inside of them. And God wants you to know it's going to work for good every single time. Now, the weird thing is, to some extent, it looks biblically like the greater the suffering, the more good he brings out of it. Because if you look at what happened to Jesus, he went through the most brutal suffering of any human being and the reward was the greatest that has ever uh, ever happened. All right. I'm going to apply this. This is hope applied. Check. This is an absolutely stunning scripture. All right. Now, I really only came to a, a new understanding of it the other day and it wasn't because I had to look up a bunch of commentaries. I, you just got to read it. Check this out. This is Jesus uh, on the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And this bit, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Listen to this. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Now, we're not going to do it because it would be weird, right? But seriously, he's saying when people abuse you and tell you you're an idiot and swear at you for being a Christian and exclude you and want to throw you in jail, you should be jumping up and down with joy and rejoicing, which makes a few amens on a Sunday morning sitting in a chair look pretty lame. True? <laughs> But why does he say this? Why does he say it? He says, you should be jumping up and down for joy in that moment because your reward in heaven is so great. For so their fathers did the prophets. How, would you, how do you go with that? It's like someone just rips it through you. I mean, that would be weird at work if you did it, but he's kind of saying, look, physically, just get stoked up about it, you know? Get steamed up about it in the best possible way. This is good. Someone has just given it to me. And God said to me that if I'm out there wearing his name and they abuse me for wearing his name, it's going to be a reward in heaven that's so great that I can jump up and down for joy in the midst of a really nasty situation. True? So you all could go. Jesus is saying your hope in heaven is so good that you could go to Iran and stand on a street corner and preach Jesus and get thrown in jail and beaten up and then jump up and down for joy. That's how good your hope is. And maybe even have your head taken off. You might jump for a few seconds after that, but... You with me? See, the thing here is, this is how good your hope is. Now, a couple of messages down the track, I'm going to be preaching a little bit about rewards, because Hebrews actually talks about rewards. You guys just seem to get your head around what God promises... You know, I'm, I'm a big kind of biblical counselling kind of guy and I think all that sort of stuff's really good, right? And I kind of 
beat up behaviour therapy a little bit, right? Because it's all about rewards and punishments. But the weird thing is that not only does God do all these really sweet things for us, but he offers all these rewards. And he promises that you will never, ever outgive him financially or anything. You'll never, you'll never be outdone. And the reward that you've got in heaven is so great you could dance and leap for joy in this situation. Amen? Is that good? Man, I mean, it'd be interesting if someone had a testimony, they could come up even right now and just say, someone abused me for loving Jesus and I just was so pumped about it. Does anyone... I'm, I'm not saying I have a go at you, all right? Just but if we did, all right? Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't that be good next week? I mean, if, if it happens this week and you do this because you know your reward is so great in heaven, come and tell one of the leaders and we'll give you a spot next week, all right? <laughs> Because we, we can all do it. It's that good. We can all do it. You guys would like to hear that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like to hear someone stand up and talk about that? Yeah, that'd be good. All right, hope text number three, and this is where we're going to land. I'm going to fly through this as quick as I can. This is 1 Peter 3, verse 1 to 6. I was going to preach about submission today. Well, ladies are just going, there you go. That wouldn't have been a good Mother's Day message, that one. <laughs> anyway, I might just read this, the scripture, eh? Uh, Likewise, wives, be sub- subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter's just unfolded about how everyone needs to be submissive to the government, and uh, he's just saying to wives, to, uh, to do the same thing, kind of, that everyone needs to do, but to their husbands. Don't let your adorning be external. So he's saying to the, the ladies, he's saying, have an internal orientation. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you, you wear, and I'm sure a bunch of you mums got some of those today. All right? And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just saying, make your orientation internal. Um, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious, right? Now, if I was going to preach on submission, I was going to call it a fierce submission because this is pretty fierce, all right? This is not, you know, that, that thing that uh, I think it was Aristotle or someone uh, said that meekness is power under control. So when you call an ox meek, all right, it's not weak, it just has the, the power harnessed, all right? And uh, Lord knows the church... Uh, needs more females, strong females who've got the power under control. True? Anyway, I didn't get too many amens on that one. <laughs> yeah, the, the dudes go amen, yeah. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. You see that? The holy women of the Old Testament, what they did... The way they adorned themselves and made themselves beautiful is by hoping in God. So they did it. They had the internal orientation of hope in God. By submitting to their husbands, their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, which was reasonably common back then. Right? I'm, we're not going to plug that one. All, right? all, the, all the wives need to call their husbands Lord from now on in. There's no amens on that one either. And you are her children, listen to this, this is the, I love this, and this is really where I want to land in this message. You are her children, Sarah's children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Isn't that interesting? 
I think that's just a, a beautiful kind of wordplay there, isn't it? There's a lot of things out there that are really scary. But if you're hoping God, you're not scared of scary stuff. So I ask you, what is the root cause of a woman's greatness in the eyes of God, the only eyes that matter? The root cause of greatness in God's eyes for a woman is, is someone who hopes in God. What's really interesting about this is if you go on in uh, the book of Hebrews to, uh, to chapter 11, chapter 11 of Hebrews makes a really almost scandalous claim about Sarah. Now, Sarah's uh, Abraham's wife. Here's, uh, here's what it says. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, if you know anything about the story, you read that and you just go, well, there's a bit of writer's embellishment going on there. Right? Now, Sarah couldn't have children. God promised there was going to be a great nation through her. So she uh, talks to her Hagar, the, her servant, which apparently was reasonably culturally acceptable back then. And uh, she and Abraham did what only Abraham and Sarah should have been doing. And, uh, and she ends up having a baby. And then she despises um, Hagar after she has the baby. And then you've got this thing here where you just kind of go, Really? Like, is it that good? Or have you just made that up? Well, check this out. We'll go back uh, really quickly to Genesis 18. Here's uh, a little bit more of the story. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So this is God telling Abraham he's going to have a son by Sarah. Now, listen, uh, Abraham's about 100, and Sarah's about 90. Okay? Now... That's, is that not a fearful thing for anyone? Like, it, you know, it's just get away from me, man. You know, like, it, wouldn't it, even if you're kind of going, I really want to have a kid, that would be scary at 90 having a baby, wouldn't it? You know, you say, I don't care what God said. You sleep in the other tent, all right? Listen to this. This is classic. Abraham and God are talking, and Sarah's kind of just around the corner doing the LVs drop, right? And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. And then you end up in this little primary school kind of tit-for-tat thing that Sarah denied it. She said, I didn't laugh. But she was afraid and God said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> or maybe it might be Abraham who's saying that. It's a bit like, did you take the biscuit? No, I didn't take the biscuit. But I saw you take the biscuit, you know, and it's this kind of thing going on. You know what I reckon is happening? If we... If we're looking at how do we actually connect this story in Genesis to uh, Hebrews 11, verse 11. You know how I think you connect it? I think you connect it. Um, if you go to Genesis chapter 21, verse 6 to 7, uh, Sarah says this. She says, God has made laughter for me. This is after she's had Isaac. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You see, the bottom line is that often hope is actually learnt through a process. It's not just something that you do and then it's locked in. 
You see, Sarah had a really checkered past, didn't she, with Hagar? But it almost looks like since uh, between when God promised and rebuked her and said, is there anything that's too hard for me? And the time that she has the kid, she's learned how to hope in God, hasn't she? Because in Genesis chapter 21, she's coming out and she's saying, you gave, you gave him to me. And I think Isaac, the name Isaac actually means he laughs or something, isn't it? You see, she gives God the glory for the child. And so we can actually assume from the writer of Hebrews that it was actually God's rebuke and God's reminder that nothing is too hard for the Lord. It actually restored her faith and her hope in God. You see, and here's the bottom line. Women who hope in God are women who look away from the troubles and miseries and obstacles of life that seem to make the future bleak. They focus their attention on the sovereign power and love of God because God rules in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. That's what godly women do. That's what godly mums do. Is they look away from the bleak prospect that might be in front of them and they hope against hope in God. So here's the thing. Don't be scared by scary things, mums. Don't be scared by scary things. This is what 1 Peter 3 verse 6 says. It says, You are her children, you're Sarah's children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You see, the holy women, their greatest hope was in God. They trusted God's promises as a sure hope. Because sure and certain hope drives out fear and anxiety. That's just how it works. And just be careful at this point. One of the classic things that I see people do around the place is they reinterpret the Bible. And they say things like, yeah, those promises are true for everyone else, but they're not for me. No, they're for you. They are for you. And God doesn't lie. He's not tricking you. When he says that all things will work together for good, he's not lying or tricking you. He's speaking the truth. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. I think I was like, amen, yeah, men lie, all right? They do, right? That's kind of what numbers are saying, men lie sometimes. Moses is saying, no, he's not like you. He never, ever lies, so you can take it to the bank. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Absolutely not. He does every single thing that he says. In Titus chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 um, Paul writes this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The promises are all there. It's not a lie. It's not a trick. It's for you. All right. You know how you can be a daughter of Sarah? The way that you be a daughter of Sarah, mums, is you be a daughter of Sarah by not fearing anything except for displeasing God. That's how you be a daughter of Sarah. You see, daughters of Sarah fight the anxiety that rises in their hearts. They wage war on fear and they defeat fear and anxiety with the promises of God. True? That's how it works. You see, in one way that you can do this, mums, is to believe the promise of blessing in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle. 1 Peter 3 verse 14 says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Amen? You'll be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You see, Sarah considered God faithful who had promised. She was believing in the midst of her, maybe her suffering of 90 years, she learnt in the end to trust and to hope in him. 1 Peter 4 verse 19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He will bless, he will come through. You see, daughters of Sarah affirm the sovereign rule of God over their suffering. And they affirm the reality that they don't suffer apart from God's will. And they rest their souls in the firm and all-powerful hands of a faithful creator. Amen? They cast out fear and they hope in God. And they prove to be the daughters of Sarah according to the promise. I'm going to close with this. Mums have lots of scary things, don't they? And you know what? I actually don't know that much about being a mum. I've observed a bit, all right? But I don't know that much about being a mum. So in in a couple of minutes, I'm just going to invite someone up to talk about being a mum and the fears that someone has. You know, there's some really scary things that mums uh, can face. They can have a fear of never being a mum. They can fear inadequacy and they bring the bub home for the first time. We're going to be able to do this. It's a huge fear of cot death, isn't it? It can be a fear of being left on your own to rear the children alone. The fear of not being able to support yourself. The fear of your kids getting sick, not doing well at school. The fear of learning problems. The fear of who your kids are going to hang out with. Is that going to be good? Is that going to be bad? The fear that they'll not turn out the way that you train them. If you had daughters, not going to be my issue, but... uh, if you've had daughters, the fear of the first date, you know, the first guy, what are the guys going to do to her? Are they going to look after her? So mums, do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught.